good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking inverse Christ figures. We're talking the original gay horror dads. And we're talking a drag inspiration for the gods, Henny. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking the Gremlins 2 to Frankenstein's Gremlins. We're talking the Bride <laughs> okay. of Frankenstein, y'all. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, you know what? That comparison totally makes sense to me. I can see it. Bride of, I wouldn't compare Bride of Frankenstein like to Gremlins 2 specifically, like, because they're not like the same amount of kooky. But, but the increase of kookiness from the first film to the next is 100% comparable. <laughs> uh huh. I mean, obviously, Gremlins is also a bit of a horror comedy, but considering how much the comedy and the camp factor is ramped up in Bride of Frankenstein, it is definitely Gremlins 2. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, everyone, if you've never seen Frankenstein, doesn't really matter matter. (laughs) this film gives you a pretty good recap yeah you get a previously on you're good to go (laughs) but yeah i mean the bride of frankenstein this was your first time watching this movie was it not it was indeed thank god we're going through some of these universal monster movies because i can now actually say oh yeah i've seen creature from the black lagoon oh yeah i've seen bride of frankenstein but this is a movie that people have been asking us to cover this movie for so long, for obvious reasons. And if you've never seen the movie, again, recommend that you go see it, because it is a really, really good movie. And, you mm-hmm. know, kind of like mandatory horror viewing, if you want to... I mean, that's a gatekeep, you know, whatever. But <laughs> um, I <laughs> would actually it. say that this is actually in the top five, maybe top three of queerest horror films we have ever covered on this podcast. Oh, I would agree. And if you are a non-listener who read our article on Creature from the Black Lagoon and didn't listen to the episode, but you for some reason started listening to this episode. <laughs> get ready for another one. Get ready for another one. <laughs> no, but honestly, in hindsight, though, what I would recommend, though, is maybe go back and listen to our episode on the old dark house. Yes. Because I'm very happy we didn't plan this really, but happy that we covered that first. Yeah, that was actually a really good primer to James Whale. And it was also great to have Kate Graham from Stop Horror Time on mm-hmm. that podcast to help us out. But this very much feels like, oh, yes, we got the really weird queer primer for Old Dark House. And mm-hmm. now we're cruising into Bride of Frankenstein, kind of like knowing what to expect in terms of what Whale is going to deliver. Yes, absolutely. And I will say, though, this is probably the third or fourth time that I've seen this film. And I think it's a film that you start catching more things each time you watch it. And of course, Mm. you do your research, you can have them spot like pointed out for you. But there's even still, I was doing my research and I was like, oh, that makes total sense. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice this in the background over there, this Jesus statue. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Jesus stuff. Not gonna lie, I was taken by how much German expressionism is in this film. So I was actually really happy to see that a lot of people have drawn comparisons between the bride and Maria from Fritz Long's Metropolis. And of course, like, 
the set design in the forest looks like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So Mm -hmm. this feels very much like, oh, yes, we also watched German Expressionism in the 20s. And now (laughs) we're doing a subtle American commentary. I'm not going to lie. I don't know what Metropolis is. And so y'all don't hate me for doing that. But yeah, whenever I think German Expressionism, I automatically think the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, because I think that might be the very first film I had to watch in film school. Makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, early on in the development of cinema history. (laughs) Uh, I would recommend Metropolis, though, as well. It's very much, like, about class, but obviously the Ike, obviously. But (laughs) there's an iconic scene in which a man creates a robot who takes on the form of a beautiful woman. Oh. Mm -hmm. And the set design looks very similar to what Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Pretorius are setting up here. I mean, German Expressionism, like, is such a beautiful aesthetic. I love it. Yeah. You know, if we ever talk about Batman Returns, maybe we can talk about that there, too. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Let's talk about German Expressionism, Batman Returns. (laughs) (laughs) But no, bringing it back to Bride of Frankenstein. So, okay, quickly, well, as quickly as you want or as slowly as you want, Joe. Yeah, what were your thoughts on this film? I really liked this. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If only because, like a lot of the Universal Monster movies, we talked about this in Creature from the Black Lagoon, this is a hot, in-and-out, kind of 80-minute movie, and it feels especially in this case, like the movie doesn't have a moment to spare. There's so much packed into almost every scene. I love the split narratives between the creature finding its humanity and just constantly trying to be better and no one letting it have its day. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, mixed with the, like, as I said, two gay horror dads trying (laughs) to get back to science and pushing women away from them as far as the eye can see. And then how it comes together to create the bride, and obviously the bride herself is such an iconic horror legend. Yeah, before having three minutes of screen time. Honestly, I'm glad that I knew going into this how little screen time she gets, because if you just went in saying, oh, well, I know the title, I'm expecting Elsa Lanchester to be around the whole time. It's like, oh, you were going to be disappointed in this movie. Um, I would have taken more of her Mary Shelley, though, because I bet that bitch is a hoot at parties. Okay, yeah, honestly, we're gonna have to spend about 15 minutes just unpacking that opening scene, which I find hilarious in doing the research. People think that that scene is unnecessary. And I disagree strongly. Yeah, I think it I think it really kind of sets up the I mean, obviously, it sets up the movie you're about to get. Mm-hmm. The original Frankenstein has something similar, but instead it's a man that just basically comes to a stage and he breaks the fourth wall, talks to the audience and says, you know, hey, like we're adapting Frankenstein. Um, This is going to have lots of thrills and scares and chills. So mm-hmm. if you're weak of heart or stomach, please leave the theater now. <laughs> oh, my God. That Here's just sounds like Alfred Hitchcock introducing his latest trailer. Oh, have you seen the Psycho House? Let's take a tour for five minutes. Or like a William Castle like gimmick, yeah. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, th- th- this movie is a hoot from start to finish. And I use that word oh, intentionally yes. so because that's how James Whale described it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine what the onset shenanigans would have been like with this troupe? I mean, I'm not going to dismiss the fact that there were a lot of addiction problems among the yeah. cast and crew. But it also seems like that reference to gin being someone's only vice is like, yeah, I think that probably was also meta. 
That guy also lies, though, because he goes, oh, gin's my only vice. And, like, two scenes later, he's like, oh, cigars are my only vice. <laughs> oh, no. That's the genius of Dr. Pretorius. He is obviously a compulsive narcissist, and obviously you can't trust anything he says. Um, as the Brits would say, buggering other men is probably also his other vice. <gasps> <gasps> Gay gasp. <laughs> no, okay, I only mentioned it this one time because I actually, so back when we did The Old Dark House last year, we discussed Gods and Monsters, the Bill Condon film right. that stars Ian McKellen as James Whale. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch this. And I, I did. I watched it today. It was really good. But it's very much Bride of Frankenstein focus. And that's why I wanted to watch it. Oh, good call. Yeah, but it's great. But there is a flashback sequence that involves like, you know, Ian McKellen as James Whale, and then like they have stand-ins for Pretorius, Elsa Lanchester, and uh, Colin Clive, who's um, who plays Henry Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, and Clive is kind of an alcoholic, so there's an issue there. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it, 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 this is like a three-minute scene tops, but okay. We have Lanchester, who's like being like, honestly, like your 1930s prototypical fag hag of sorts. <laughs> Wait, do we not? No, we don't call them that anymore. Remember, we call them fruit flies. Fruit flies. Okay. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, I'll like program that in my head. But <laughs> I'll bleep myself. Uh, but there, there's an exchange between Ernest Thessinger and uh, and James Whale where they're basically talking about how they're the, they're, they're the two queens on set and they're partying all the time. And like Manchester nice. comes in and she's like, oh, like it's that kind of party this weekend, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God, like. More of this, please. But then we have to go back to the present because the movie's actually set 20 years after this. <laughs> yeah, during the, the sad decline of James Whale as he's just eyeing up his gardener, right? Yes, pretty much. Um, played by a very hunky Brendan Fraser. But yeah, I love that you tweeted a picture of that. And I was like, this is George of the Jungle timeline trace. Obviously, he is jacked and beautiful. Yeah, but he doesn't have his George of the Jungle hair. So it's oh, better. of course. All right. <laughs> I was always all I was always about Holland Taylor and George of the Jungle anyway. Eh, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's um. So you saying, oh, the shenanigans on set? I can only imagine what they were like. I mean, mm-hmm. 1930s, not even closeted. Like there's like there's something that uh, Whale says in Gods and Monsters when he's like, if you're a director, who knows about directors? You can do whatever the fuck you want as long as you don't put it in the picture. <laughs> right. Oh boy. Okay. So okay. The Bride of Frankenstein. Let's let's go through some of a production history here. Okay. So, you know, Frankenstein comes out in 1931. And Universal, from the get-go, like as early as Frankenstein's previous screenings, was like, you know what? We do want to make a sequel to this. Because in the original ending of Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, Henry, I don't know why they call him Henry instead of Victor, but there you go. I know. It's confusing, hey? I kept writing Victor in my notes and then realized, oh, no, right, it's not that. Yeah, it is Henry. But he died in the original ending. And I guess during previous screenings, they were like, ooh, we might want to do a sequel. So they changed it to where he could live or lives. Mm -hmm. Whale is like, "Uh, I'm not going to do that. I have squeezed this idea idea dry. No. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll work on it and find someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, but, but then Whale's next film for Universal, or at least one of his next films, was The Indivisible Man, which was a huge hit. And I do believe it's actually Whale's favorite film in his oeuvre. Oh, okay. But producer Carl Lamley Jr. was like, oh, Whale is the only one that can do a sequel to Frankenstein. So we need to get him back. So Whale does what John Carpenter tried to do with his Creature from the Black Lagoon remake. And he was like, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll do your sequel to Frankenstein, but you got to make me make this other movie first. And... Luckily, that worked out for Whale, unlike John Carpenter, uh, and, <laughs> and he was able to make this movie, which was called One More River, some drama that he was like, I'll have to make it. Okay, cool. Everyone deserves a music of the heart, Trace. Come on. 
Oh, yes, there you go. Wes Craven getting music of the heart in, in, so he could make Scream 3. <laughs> so Whale is like, you cannot top Frankenstein, at least by doing the same thing. Like, mm-hmm. it's already a perfect film, whatever. So he, as I said earlier, wanted to make it a memorable hoot. If you watch this movie and you're like, this is kind of funny, is it supposed to be? The answer is a resounding yes. yes. Yeah. It, it's so obviously both satire and political commentary but also there's so many lines in here and so many ridiculous sequences that you have to assume that there's comedy intentional comedy here okay so this is actually from blu-ray.com's review of the film from 2013 but i love i love the way this starts is the bride of frankenstein a horror film a complex comedy a genre satire a social commentary a dual creature feature a sequel a revelation an act of mad genius a sharp turn, a crown jewel, a hoot? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why it has the historical legacy that it does have is because it is balancing so many fucking plates in the air and doing them all really well. Yeah. And it almost didn't end up this way because this film went through so many drafts of screenplays to get to the to where it was today. So originally they had screenwriter Robert Flory. He wrote a treatment entitled The New Adventures of Frankenstein. The oh monster God, hard lives. Pass. Hard <laughs> pass. No sir. So that was rejected without comment in early two- 1932. And I'm like, so they read the title and said, no, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> sir, you are not being paid by the word. Goodbye. Next up, Universal staff writer Tom Reed wrote a treatment under the title The Return of Frankenstein, um, which was a title that they actually kept with the film until they started filming the, what, what, what would be the final draft. Hmm. Okay. Following its acceptance in 33, Reed wrote a full script that was submitted to the Hayes office because that's what you had to do. As we discussed in Rebecca, and I think maybe even The Old Dark House, you mm-hmm. had to submit the script to the Hayes office to make sure it approved the censor board. Oh, yes. Yeah. And go back to and listen to the old Dark House episode, not just because of that, but also if you want to play the Haze Code drinking game, which is oh every God. time I say the words Haze Code, you take a shot and then you die. Oh, yes. That was the history lesson for Haze Code, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. So maybe do that one first and not Rebecca, but we do talk about it in Rebecca. For sure. <laughs> because it impacts so many films from like basically three decades worth mm-hmm. of Hollywood productions. Oh, trust me. I got notes about what did not pass the censor board in this movie, and it is funny. I love it. They fucking pulled the wool over those idiots' eyes. (laughs) So much religious shit. Um, So yeah, this script does pass the Hays Code review, but Whale steps in and goes, "Um, this stinks to high heaven. (laughs) (laughs) I'm presuming with a martini in hand. I'm fairly certain, yes. Martini in one hand, cigar in the other, and looking dapper while doing so. Oh, I love it. (laughs) So because, of course, he's like, he's calling the shots here. They're like, all right, we'll toss out this fucking script. (laughs) Next up is L.G. Blockman and Philip McDonald. They, they were assigned as writers, and they wrote something, and Whale goes, nope, that is unsatisfactory. So. Now he's by the pool, watching a pool boy skim. No, I'm not doing this one either. Well, it's like, while all, like, this is all happening, like, while Whale is doing The Invisible Man, One More River, and The Old Dark House. Like, all this happens between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Nice. Okay. So in 1934, Whale set John L. Balderston to work on yet another version of the script, and it was he who returned to an incident from the novel in which the creature demands a mate. Uh, in the book, he demands it, but destroys it without bringing it to life. Right. And then, of course, this is the same guy that created the prologue that we're going to talk about with Mary Shelley. Okay. After several months, though, Whale was still not really satisfied with Balderston's work and handed the project to playwright, and I love this, William J. Hurlbut. 
but I keep saying Hurlbut, which I'm just like, of course. <laughs> and Edmund Pearson. The final script combines elements of a number of these versions, uh, which also uh, Whale had input to. Like, he was the one that came up with the tiny people for Pretorius and stuff like that. Okay. But they submitted for the Hayes Office review in November of 1934, and it passes, so production can finally begin. Big changes between films, though. Uh, Mae Clark, who played Elizabeth in the first film, uh, she is ill at this point in time, so they recast her with a 17-year-old, Valerie Hobson, as Elizabeth. Yeah, she does look young. (laughs) Early in production, though, Whale decided that the same actress cast to play the bride also played Mary Shelley. That was like a done deal for him. He was like, we do this or I'm out. It's pretty genius, actually. It's very inspired. Well, because he did it to represent how the story in horror in general springs from the dark side of the imagination, right? You mm-hmm. have this horror story that's told from this, and this, I don't know if this sounds sexist or not, but like this, this dainty, very pristine looking young woman. Well, right. And people who have seen any of the myriad of documentaries and or biopics about Mary Shelley know that she was constantly living in the shadow of her husband, Percy, but that she was the true genius. So a lot of people just discounted her because she was a small woman, which is always a mistake. And there was something in this prologue that was also cut for the censors because there was something where Lord Byron like references how basically they're all fucking together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Hayes Club was like, nope, can't have that. <laughs> but anyway, so Whale, for Mary Shelley and the Bride, he picks Elsa Lanchester. And Lanchester at the time, actually forever, was married to Charles Lawton, a horror queers alumni who was also in James Whale's The Old Dark House. Mm-hmm. He had a troop. Yes, he had a troop, which, I mean, we'll get to you too, because also our good Pretorius was in Old Dark House as well. Mm-hmm. But Lawton, as we discussed in Old Dark House, was a bisexual, well, bisexual, homosexual, queer. He was queer in some shape, way, or form. <laughs> it's been debated, but yes, he he was not exclusively heterosexual. Yes. So when they moved to Hollywood from the UK, they had met with only moderate success, while Lawton had made a strong impact with a bunch of films. Lanchester had returned alone to London because she was like, well, I'm over this, when Whale contacted her to offer her the dual role. And she was like, cool, I'll come in for this two-minute prologue and this three-minute climax. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It'll make my career. It'll be worth it. Well, I mean, and she stayed in the horror genre for a while. Like, I mean, she was in Mary Poppins, which isn't horror, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's a horrific movie to some. Yeah. <laughs> she was Willard's mom in the original Willard film. And she was, um, uh, one of her last film roles was um, one of my favorite horror comedies, uh, Murder by Death. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's really, really good. Anyway, so there were a couple other changes too. Like, you know, the monster speaks in this one, which Boris Karloff strongly uh, did not want to happen. Uh, he was like, nope, uh, if you have the creature talk, it's going to make a mockery of the creature and also ruin the impact of the first film. Obviously, that did not happen because people yeah. are very... The creature's arc is like one of the most compelling parts of this film. Mm-hmm. Which to me suggests that Karloff either didn't understand the script or he felt so protective of the character he thought that any changes would... Yeah, I mean, I guess I can understand him fearing that this well, well, well received original would be tarnished by doing something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and he would come back for this and then the son of Frankenstein, but then starting with the ghost of Frankenstein, the fourth film in the franchise, that's when we get uh, Lon Chaney Jr. playing the role. Blah. <laughs> so anyway, shooting began on January 2nd, 1935. And oh, this, uh, this is my favorite part. Not for anyone else, but for me. <laughs> um, we've got a projected budget of $293,750. 
roughly 5.54 million as of 2021. So mm-hmm. that's your inflation, which it's a Blumhouse film. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's almost exactly the budget of the original um, and an estimated 36 day shooting schedule. On the first day, Karloff broke his hip which meant he needed a stunt double. Colin Clive had broken a leg, so he needed help. That's why he's sitting for most of his scenes. Okay. They complete shooting March 7th, 1935, so just over two months later. It was 10 days over schedule because Whale shut down the picture for 10 days until O.P. Heggie could become available to play the, the blind hermit that we see in the film. Which is fascinating to me. If I didn't know, I wouldn't have thought that character was that significant. Okay, that is fascinating that you say that because I actually think he is very significant, but I don't know, like, what the the performance of the actor himself, like, you know, like, mm-hmm. why, why was Heggy like so important for this role? You know? Yeah, yeah, because the character and obviously a lot of the readings we're going to draw from, he's a very significant character. But yes. in terms of that actor, I thought, mm, I mean, he's not really doing much that makes me think, oh, gotta have him in there. Yeah, yeah, the character is necessary, the actor maybe not so much. I mean, yeah. no offense to Mr. Heggie. Sure. So we've got a final cost of $397,000. So it went over budget by about hundred grand. That is about $4 million today. <laughs> so $4 million over budget. It's okay, it made a shit ton. It did make a shit ton of money. So when Whale completed the final cut, he actually had to cut 15 minutes out of the film. This movie was originally 90 minutes long, but the mm. one we have is 75 minutes long. Yeah, see, they didn't make 95-minute movies back in the 30s, or at least not for Universal Monsters. Well, there were a couple of things. Honestly, I think a lot of it had to do with the censorship board. So, like, during production by the Hayes office and following the film's release, Joseph Breen, who we did discuss in um, mm-hmm. in Rebecca, lead censor for the Hayes office, uh, he objected to a couple things. So there were lines of dialogue in the originally submitted script in which Henry Frankenstein and his work were compared to that of God. This yep. is, of course, a big no-no. It is blasphemous to do that. But it's also fucking ridiculous because the entire movie is about his God complex. I'm so confused by the Hayes Code, if only because it's like, it's in the book. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not like they're inventing it for the film. It's in this work of classic literature that you that libraries allow people to read. Yeah, but they don't care. They they look at film as a completely separate medium, which of course it is. But at the same time, you fundamentally misunderstand the entire point of the story if you're going to challenge this particular piece. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, I mean, c- continuing religious iconography, um, there was a plan shot of the monster. So when he's going through the graveyard, he was going to find a, cr- a figure of a crucified Jesus and try to rescue the figure from the cross. Mm. They were like, nope, can't do that. So instead he pushes over a like a, a tower of a bishop, which is essentially, you know, really shitting on religion already but Mm -hmm. the boy was fine with that and the crucifix of jesus was in the background (laughs) well the difference is is that they don't want to make the monster sympathetic which again i'm just like oh so you didn't watch the final print because the the monster comes off very sympathetic in this film you know what though no because i think that's the thing of like people from the time or maybe maybe uh more straight-laced conservative people at the time because Again, in Gods and Monsters, uh, Lynn Redgrave plays James Whale's very conservative, very religious, like, homosexuality disapproving uh, housekeeper. Okay. And they watch Bride of Frankenstein together, and she's, A, very repulsed by the creature. And Mm -hmm. when it ends, she goes, oh, that's good. The heroes survive. Yes. To see the day, and the monsters die. I'm like, oh. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that's why we get the ending that we do is because just like melodramas, Whale had to put that, oh, the monster doesn't doesn't live and the heroes survive. But the rest of the film completely undercuts that and it makes the ending feel like a joke to me. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And we'll definitely talk about that more once we get to the ending. Yeah, 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 it's a short film. <laughs> and this is true. But for actual things that were cut out of the finished film, though, so um, Whale agreed to delete a sequence in which Dwight Fry, and this is the guy that plays Carl, um, his nephew Glutz kills his uncle and blames the monster. So they had an issue with too many murders, and this was just one of them. They were like, okay, we can cut this, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, I think that that's kind of an okay omission, because we don't know that much about that character. Maybe we would have, but it feels extraneous to what we're actually getting. Well, and he's a returning actor, too, but not playing the same character because he was um, Fritz, who people always think it's Igor in Frankenstein, but Igor doesn't come into the third film. Right. But um, the, the the creature kills his character in the first movie. So he's just this actor's back playing a new character <laughs> and getting killed again. Yep. Um, but OK, the big thing that they cut, and I love this because this our prologue would have been a lot longer. There were two. A, there were shots, period, of Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley that Breen thought too much of her breasts were visible. So so they had to cut out a lot of her scenes, a lot of her shots, at least, because her tits were too prominent. Oh, my God. (laughs) Heaven forbid women's breasts. They had no problem with the scene of the creature lashed to a Christ-like pole, which, again, I'm like, okay, well, now you're, like, putting the monster Mm -hmm. in, like, Christ-like. He's a stand-in for Jesus, but that's okay. Yeah. How do you not have a problem with that? And Pretorius was a coded homosexual, even known at the time, Mm -hmm. but that was okay because he was coded. It wasn't explicit. And, again, he does die at the end, so he kind of gets his just desserts. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is true. So yeah, they approve the film uh, on April 15th, 1935, but then it ran into other issues, you know, like after the code gave it the seal of approval, it was challenged by the censorship board in the state of Ohio. Censors in England and China objected to the scene uh, when the monster looks lovingly and gazingly at the body of the bride, saying that Mm. it looked too much like necrophilia, (laughs) which I'm like, but it's it's dead looking at dead. (laughs) Stupid. Universal voluntarily withdrew the film from Sweden because of the extensive cuts demanded. Bride was rejected outright by Trinidad, Palestine, and Hungary. Japanese censors objected to the scene in which Pretorius chases his miniature Henry VIII with tweezers, saying that it constituted making a fool out of the king. Yeah, I I did get a <laughs> laugh out of that one, but I can also kind of see it, because when you're very fixated on your monarchy or, like, your royal family, then mm-hmm. you don't want to make fun of them. I don't understand monarchies. Not shading them. I just, it's not a, a form of government that I'm familiar with outside of what I've learned in like middle school. Right. It's very not a US thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, um, so returning to your statement from earlier, this was a very profitable film. It earned approximately $2 million, which is about $29 million in today money. Mm-hmm. For a profit of about 950000 which is about $14 million today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Critically praised upon its release, although, and this is what I I love this note too, a lot of reviewers qualified their opinions based on the films being in the horror genre, meaning a lot of the reviewers were like, well, for a horror film, it's really good. Good to say that nothing has fucking changed in 90 years. I know! (laughs) In terms of accolades, uh, it's got one Academy Award only for sound recording, so that was that, but I also think that's, again, you know, yeah, horror's lowbrow. Indeed. 
in terms of just legacy, and then I'll be done, uh, the film was added to the United States National Film Registry, having been deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Frequently identified as James Whale's masterpiece, the film is lauded as the finest of all gothic horror films. Oh, wow. Time rated Bride of Frankenstein in its all-time 100 movies. It was selected by Empire Magazine as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time. The Boston Herald named it the second greatest horror film after Nosferatu. And, my favorite, Playboy ranked the film number seven on a list of 15 sequels that are way better than the originals. (laughs) My god, for a minute, for a hot minute, I thought you were going to say hottest horror icons, (laughs) The Bride or something. Although I will say, Elsa Lanchester's eyes are so striking. Oh, yeah. No. There's a reason. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. But there is a reason that the bride has become such a fixture of horror. 100 percent so yeah i mean that's all our fun film history which i always find very interesting so i hope you did too of course it's the part where you get to talk the most (laughs) so i'm just out of the podcast i'm gonna check out now this is true yeah yeah you know you'll be checking twitter you'll be like watching pokemon or something oh my god Okay, so I'm not sure if you have anybody that you wanted to pull in in terms of references, but I'm going to be referring to two people, our old friend Harry M. Benshoff, who I love to go back to for the old film. So once again, Monsters in the Closet, huge recommend. And then I'm also going to bring in Gary Morris, who wrote a piece called Sexual Subversion, The Bride of Frankenstein for Bright Lights Film Journal. And I'm sure that will have plenty to talk about because his reading has gotten criticized from friends of James Whale for reading too much into it. I I, I find that very, very fascinating. Um, <laughs> but um, yes. So I don't have the piece that it's from because, of course, my uh, my footnotes on Wikipedia uh, sometimes fail me. But I'm okay. going to pull in a, a, uh, some quotes from gay film historian Vito Russo about Pretorius. Cool, cool. Okay. So we open on a dark and stormy night as an elegant threesome sit in the parlor room. They are Lord Byron, who is played by Gavin Gordon, Percy Shelley, who is played by Douglas Walton, and of course, Mary Shelley, who, as we've said numerous times, is played by Elsa Lanchester. And she is talking about how she basically is justifying why she wrote a story like Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. To, to these men, these silly men. Okay, so I'm immediately going to bring in both Morris and Benchoff here. So Morris says, This scene, allegedly irrelevant to the narrative, actually goes far in establishing Whale's tone of homosexual revenge on his patrons. (laughs) The two men are heavily made up and look, talk, and act with an outlandish caricatured femininity that has no discernible purpose except as camp comedy Mm -hmm. the elegance of the interior the high-pitched humor of the scene and the relaxed amused adult relationship of the three present a model of what might be read as whale's ideal family two gay men and a sympathetic but sexually undemanding female three intelligent creative beings on equal footing that's why they cut all those shots of her tits out not because the haze cub but because whale was like no 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 (laughs) (laughs) no one's being distracted by this honey Uh, well, I, I, you've mentioned camp before in relation to this film, but like, what what to you makes this film camp? Is it just the outlandishness of this within what is otherwise a relatively straightforward horror setting? I think a lot of Ernest Thessinger's line delivery, mm. just the way he's kind of mincing around, like this is kind of the perfection for me of what a really over the top queer caricature could look like. 
when properly embraced by an actor and a director. Yeah. And that's not something I mean, again, I have obviously not seen every movie from the 30s or, you know, 100 movies from the 30s for that matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, I, I feel it's not something that you're just going to see. And it's honestly no. to Wales credit that he had complete creative control of this film for the most part mm-hmm. that he let this happen that he made this happen not let it happen he made this happen oh yeah and if people haven't listened again to our episode on the old dark house whale and Tessinger were really close friends so this was whale doing his friend a favor and this went on to become Thessinger's biggest role by far as well well and if we want to talk about i mean like real life gayness in this film so we've already said james whale was openly gay mm-hmm. some of the actors in the cast so ernest Thessinger and colin clive were gay or bisexual mm-hmm. um oh, nope that, nope that's it yeah no i'm good Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, there's so much queerness running around on and off set. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is why people critiquing Morris's very queer reading of this film and saying, oh, well, I think you're doing a bit of a reach. This isn't what Whale intended. As always, even if Whale didn't intend to bring his queerness or Thessinger's queerness or uh, Colin Clive's queerness into this, you can see it on the screen. And... It's not diminished because he may have said, oh, I didn't actually intend for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, even Whale's biographer, James Curtis, like, he, he was like, oh, no, like, if people say Whale would have identified with the monster from a homosexual perspective, he's like, no, 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 like, that, that's not true. He wasn't put it, he wanted to make a good film. And it's like, as you just said, it doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so what, what, what is so wonderful about queer artists is that whether we're intending to or not, our queerness seeps into our, our into our art. Mm-hmm. The fact that he described this film as a hoot and it comes out as campy is yeah. testament alone. 100%. Okay, so I'm going to flip now and talk about Benshaw's interpretation of this scene. So mm-hmm. he says, This particular erotic triangle feels little need to suppress its homoerotic leanings. The elegant three are decidedly foppish and repeatedly call each other darling. Mm-hmm. Which to me, I'm like, oh, in a 2021 lens, yeah. Yeah, it's that, that, that that's your henny back then? A little bit, right? Like, <laughs> this is the RuPaul's Drag Race of parlor affairs. Oh my god, shoot me for that. I love it, I love it. So their status as sexual transgressors is made clear. Lord Byron refers to himself as England's greatest sinner, while Mary, in dialogue cut, as you suggested from the release print, asserts that Shelley is reviled by society as a monster himself. Because of his unorthodox sexual praxis. <gasps> a scandalo! I know. In a further bit of dialogue, which was also cut, Mary hints at their open relationship. We yes. are three infidels, scoffers at all marriage ties, believing only in living fully and freely in whatever direction the heart dictates. Such an audience needs something stronger than a pretty little love story. And really, that's the thesis yeah. of the whole fucking movie right <laughs> yes. there. Which is disappointing that it ends up getting cut then, right? Because really, it's like, oh, the movie you're about to watch is not a love story. It is a fucking tragedy. But also, it's about the denial of heterosexual marriage. It 100% is. Because had the creature not, you know, killed them all, um, it (laughs) would have been a three-way relationship with the bride, the creature, and Pretorius. Yeah, or like the the mothering Pretorius who's trying to make these kids make it work, and they're just like, we're not actually interested in each other. It's like <laughs> exactly. a bad arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. <laughs> Sexual politics do not line up with 2021 standards. Indeed, yeah. 
So that that's why I think this opening scene is actually super significant. If anything, I almost wish that we could have gotten more of mm-hmm. this witty and gay repartee to close the film out. But of course, like always, this is a universal monster movie. So the minute that the action yeah. is done, those credits are rolling. I do agree with you. I was surprised. Well, I was sad, but not surprised that we don't have like a bookend. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why people say it's not necessary because it doesn't like it doesn't come there in the beginning. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I I would say, I mean, it'd probably be better with those cut lines of dialogue put Mm -hmm. back in. But it's still, yeah, I think it sets the stage perfectly, at least for the tone of film we're about to get to. Indeed. Yeah. A little bit horrifying, a little bit campy and a little bit extravagant. Mm hmm. (laughs) All right, so we get a previously on montage from the first film, and this is where Mary reveals that the story didn't end there, so she sets this scene in the wreckage of the burning mill. We're reintroduced to Hans and his wife, whose name I didn't catch, but they are the father and mother of the little girl who drowns in the first film. Uh, her name is Hans's wife, so says oh the my credits. God. <laughs> Speaking of sexual politics that do not translate to 2021, give this woman a name. But no one cares about them because the most important character in this movie is Una O'Connor's Minnie, who is the best thing about this. Yes. (laughs) I can't remember if it's Morris or Benshaw. I think it might be Morris calls her a drag queen because she's like just vamping it up and acting the fool and making such a big show of everything in this movie. I mean, we'll get to it in a minute, but... If anything, if you missed it in the prologue, her performance is very much like a, oh, mm-hmm. what, what, what movie are am we I doing watching? here? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and that's when you'll have people that are saying, is this supposed to be funny? And it's like, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you look at her reacting to the monster for the first time without being like, it's so that's funny. hilarious. <laughs> Either that or she reminds me of a theater actress who's then made to act on film and doesn't realize you don't have to play to the back of the theater. So she actually is a theater actress that made her way into okay. film? <laughs> uh, yeah, but, uh, and, she, and she's in The Invisible Man, too, in a much smaller role. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, th- this is uh, th- I love her. Like, she, oh, she's so memorable not? in this film. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, okay, so hands and... Hans's wife are more or less brutally murdered by the creature or the monster. I'm going to use the words interchangeably. I mean, that's hey, you say brutally murdered, but the thing is, like, I'm going to say kind. Well, no, I guess he does kill them intentionally, but it's like he kind of just holds him underwater for a bit. Like, I, I, I almost view it as a pseudo accident. <laughs> oh, a lot of the murders in this movie are accidental. I would say in this case, maybe the creature is just a little outraged. He becomes more human over the course of the narrative, so he's mm-hmm. still very much in rampage mode here. But I won't lie, watching Hans's wife's body go over the precipice and oh, then yeah. get crunched up by that water wheel is. Ah! The censors had no problem with that. <laughs> I mean, it's good to see that the U.S. censorship board was doing the USA A-OK. <laughs> We're good with violence, but we don't want to talk about sex or religion all the way back to 1935. Can I? A mayor? I can. <laughs> <laughs> I think I misunderstood the assignment. <laughs> Okay, so yes, Minnie does see the creature, who is, of course, played by Boris Karloff, and she has a conniption fit, so she tries to tell people, and no one believes her, which just leads me to believe that she's the person who's constantly telling tall tales and lying. Yeah, well, she's not in the first movie. (laughs) 
So she's just imagined an invention for this, but yeah, yes. But she's just like the crazy old lady that lives in this town, mm-hmm. this village. I'm just imagining that if this movie was made nowadays and made by like Disney, we would get a Disney plus spinoff of mini story and like, what is life like for Minnie living in this town dealing with all of these monsters? Like, I imagine her being an innkeeper, but isn't she like... She's the house servant yeah, or the maid for, for the Frankenstein family. For Frankenstein, exactly. Yeah. 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 I don't know. You know, I think she's the innkeeper in The Invisible Man. Maybe that's why I'm thinking that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I haven't seen it. It's good. Oh, really good. <laughs> we can cover it one day. Benchoff yeah. has a read on it. We There we go. We'll do it. <laughs> All right, so speaking of the Frankenstein family, we basically deliver Henry Frankenstein, played by Colin Clive. He is delivered to his fiancée, Elizabeth, Valerie Hobson, and he very much looks like he's dead, but after some, you know, bedtime and a little bit of, like, warm towels and tea, presumably, he (laughs) is more or less revived, and he's still completely obsessed with all of this, like bringing living men back from the dust of the dead. And Elizabeth is kind of hysterical about it. Yeah, uh, she, oh God, she's just like, uh, oh, I, I had a vision of death coming. You're going to die. Oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's me getting used to this style of acting, but the featurette that came with this blue there, like, this guy is like, oh, she. this woman gives a wonderful performance, a fantastic performance. And I'm just kind of like, oh God, get her out of the movie. <laughs> I think that this is her biggest scene and it doesn't quite play well because we don't understand why she is so hysterical i almost wish that we could have seen something here but she's haunted by the actions that he committed in the first film yeah and her character had one interaction with the creature where she was like basically getting ready for their wedding and he sneaks in through the window and like actually a really good suspenseful scene where like she doesn't know he's there and he's like literally just following her around the room and every Mm. time she turns she keeps like missing him in her eye line (laughs) oh interesting so i guess they kind of replicated here when he kidnaps her yes exactly okay so morris does actually have a bit of a read on this particular scene he says the seductiveness of death threatens to part them but death here can also be read as a heterosexist version of homosexuality a kind of barrenness the inability or worse indifference to producing children henry's crime and his lure is therefore homosexuality (laughs) well i was gonna say because technically the creature is their child Mm mm-hmm but th- that's the thing, too. Like, like the, this relationship between Henry and Elizabeth, I just don't give two shits about. Oh, no, because they're not the right couple. They're no. so not the right couple in this movie. That's where the queerness is coming from. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There you go, Benshoff. Oh, no, that's 100% his reading. He says the most obviously queer ones are those wherein the homosexual pair set out to procreate without the aid of woman. Maybe that's why the women are so sidelined in this movie. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is an inherently masculine tale. It's about men discovering they don't need women or marriage and that they can make their own kids. (laughs) They just need. Yep. There you go. (laughs) It's gay marriage. 1935. (laughs) What what was allowed back then? Right. Yeah. (laughs) We'll get there. So enter Dr. Pretorius, played by Ernest Thessinger, and he arrives looking like Father Karras from The Exorcist, but he's got a more severe haircut. 
a more severe haircut and as you've already mentioned um, a very much more pronounced performance <laughs> mm-hmm. so this is when i'll bring in mr vito russo this is a gay film historian okay he stopped short of identifying the character as gay instead of referring to him as sissified yeah <laughs> which i thought was funny uh sissy itself being hollywood code for gay right he goes, Pretorius serves as a gay Mephistopheles, a figure of seduction and temptation, mm-hmm. going so far as to pull Frankenstein away from his bride on their wedding night to engage in the unnatural act of creating non-procreative light. Yep. A novelization of the film that was published in England did make this implication clear. Having hmm. Pretorius say to Frankenstein, be fruitful and multiply. Let us obey the biblical injunction. You, of course, have the choice of natural means. But as for me, I'm afraid that there is no course open to me but the scientific way. Yeah, I love it. I kind of love it. There was also a, something that was cut from the script. When he's, he shows the people, the little people to Frankenstein and he's like, Blah, blah, blah. Like, if you, like, believe in Jesus or those other fairy tales, um, they couldn't have him say fairy tales in reference to Bible stories because that would mean that they imply <laughs> that they are not real. Right. So they have to have him say, actually, Bible tales. But he says Bible tales with such disdain. Mm-hmm. That's how <laughs> so you get around like, the code. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, the code is so stupid. Those yes. people were dumb. Uh, also looking at you, MPA members of the day. Yeah. Censorship board, part two. Yeah. So interestingly enough, Pretorius here reveals that he was booted out of the university. And Benshoff has this read where he says, Pretorius defends his unorthodox scientific practices as a gay man might defend his sexuality. Those who experiment in the creation of living organisms have been accused of impiety, even of blasphemy. Of course, as you and I, and all men of learning know, such accusations are only made by the narrow, the bigoted, and the superstitious. <laughs> I do love this read, though. Is that okay? Like Pretorius is gay because he cannot create. He cannot create life of his own, so he has to create it. Like not what is it? Like, non procreatively. But mm-hmm. what does that say about Frankenstein? Uh, that he's more of the same, really. <laughs> <laughs> he's just closeted. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why Pretorius is described as a Mephistopheles character because mm-hmm. he is luring this man who, if left alone, he could go off and have this quote-unquote happy marriage with Elizabeth, but he keeps getting seduced over to the dark side. I think one of the things I appreciate most about this film is how there's a multiplicity of queer readings. So you can see right. Pretorius as explicitly queer. You can see Frankenstein as a kind of like queer representation. Well, he could go either way. And then you can also see the way that Frankenstein's monster, like the creature played by Boris Karloff, is mm-hmm. ostracized by society in a queer manner. And I think that's the easiest reading to get to, right? Because it's like, okay, monster, outcast, queer. There you go. Mm-hmm. I will say, too, um, so because we've we mentioned this, but Colin Clive was a pretty voracious alcoholic. He, he died about two years after this yeah. from tuberculosis, I think, actually. But the studio, I think, wanted to recast him because they're like, he's not reliable. Like, we can't like mm-hmm. have him do this. And Whale did not recast him because he needed his, quote-unquote, hysterical quality. And... I get that because you, know, you have the, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive in the first movie. Mm-hmm. But I'm also just kind of like, he also probably wanted his gayness around. He protected his friend, presumably, or someone that he enjoyed working with. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, I mean, when you look at Clive's performance in this, I mean, A, he does look a little bit sick, mm-hmm. but 
he gives off that kind of wounded vulnerability that we do tend to associate with kind of like, oh, the limp-wristed gay man. In this case, I, I do think it works for the character, not in a negative sense, but just that he almost looks ground down by Pretorius. Like, it's easy to assume that Pretorius could come in and lure this man away with deceitful thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I love their dynamic in this well, movie. Well, I mean, yeah, Pretorius is luring him to the dark side, a.k.a. the queer side. Like, he's saying, yeah. come make this baby with me, you yeah. hunk of man. Yeah, don't stay and have it the natural way. Be unnatural with me. Yes, love it. Yeah, which is exactly what he does. So they, they basically <laughs> just ditch Elizabeth in the middle of the night so that they can go to Pretorius's lab. <laughs> this is where we get the scene where we're introduced to the Homunculi miniatures. Okay, I, I'm glad you said that because I don't know how to say that. <laughs> I do not. I, I'm pronouncing it phonetically and I hope it's correct. <laughs> I think I was calling it the Homunculi. That might be better. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I added in an extra syllable in there somewhere. So the fun thing about this is that Pretorius can create artificial life, life, but he can't make them full size. So he's got a queen, a king, an archbishop, Satan, a ballerina, and a mermaid. And of course, everybody finds it significant that he introduces the queen first, that the king is very horny, and that the archbishop is very... um dismissive and punitive so again we've got some commentary about figures of authority and well the king is definitely very rapey mm-hmm. and the king and the queen will actually mirror what the creature and the bride of the creature will become yes, later indeed but a the special effects here are great uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like watching this i was just like how in 1935 <laughs> did yep. they do this but i also just like this is hilarious they give these little homonunculi, <laughs> like, the me, 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 voices, which I just like cackling in my seat watching this. It reminded me of how adults speak in the Peanuts cartoons. Yes, um, but like, maybe with like a Looney Tunes bent to it. Right, yeah. <laughs> so this is proof that Pretorius can be a contributor to this uh, unnatural marriage between the two men. And he suggests that together, it needs the two of them together to create a woman. And that should be really interesting. Well, because what he wants to do is create a man-made human race. And again, if we're going with the queer reading here, or, or we could even compare it to what, what would come later, um, Magneto's plan in the first X-Men movie. <laughs> yeah. Make everyone queer. Turn everyone queer. Or mm-hmm. we're creating a race of queer people for ourselves. Because, yeah, that's exactly what this is. And I kind of love that. Like, Pretorius is obviously framed as the villain of this film. Sure. But I do like that it's kind of like this sad gay man who is alone in the world who has to create other people like him so he isn't alone anymore. So he isn't the Mm. only queer person in his neck of the woods. Yeah. And part of this is his storyline mirrors the creature storyline where they are basically outcasts from society because of who they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the creature, we cut back so we can touch base with how his story is going. He's more or less wandering through the woods. He inadvertently attacks a female shepherdess in a scene that mirrors the original film. But in this case, he actually tries to help her. Mm -hmm. But of course, when two hunters come by, they see him trying to help her. And because of the way the creature looks and the way the woman is reacting, they think that he's trying to, I guess, sexually assault her or kill her. 
this is the first one has moments like this because you do empathize with the creature in the first film, but Bride of Frankenstein does so much more legwork in mm-hmm. giving this creature. Per- and it's not just that he has lines; like there is so much more emotion in Boris Karloff's face. Yeah, partially due to the fact that, like, because he had to speak, they had to change his dental work so his right. look as dead, like his, his cheeks aren't sunken in. Mm. But it's just like you feel so much for this creature, and and again. Queer allegory, we're saying this monster represents the homosexual, whatever, queer person. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, he's just try- living his life, being yep. nice, but people look at him or see what he is and immediately judge, immediately get their, their torches out. Yep. And we're singing the mob song from Beauty and the Beast. Absolutely. And that's literally what happens next. So this commotion yeah. attracts the attention of the Burgomaster, who is played by E.E. E. Clive. And this angry mob forms. I love the shots of the mob chasing the creature through the woods. This for me was the height of the German expressionism. Mm, Just the nice way that stuff. the trees look. And I think Whale, he shoots the film in a really dynamic fashion, particularly during these action scenes. He knows how to work a camera, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, So they end up surrounding him on this giant rock. I do love that he just casually murders two of them by pushing a boulder on top of them. (laughs) I wrote in my notes, boulder push. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually kind of great. Yeah. No, it really is. And they they just get smushed. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah. (laughs) So this mob ends up tying him up. This is where we get that Christ-like allegory like he's being crucified. And then they transport him back to the old dungeon. And then throughout this whole sequence, Minnie is there just providing color commentary, <laughs> yapping on the whole time. Hey, if you're listening to this and you've gotten this far and you have not seen this movie, just search for Una O'Connor's scenes in this movie because <laughs> they're so funny. She's very amusing. Yeah. What I also like here is that you think, oh, okay, that that seemed very easy. Uh, I guess we're moving on past this because they're putting him into the dungeon. They're chaining him to the floor. He looks like he's in pain. And he just busts the fuck out immediately. (laughs) Takes him no time at all. He's rampaging around this village. Well, because when they're carrying into this dungeon, too, it looks like they're about to, like, roast him over a fire. Uh, yeah, roast him over a fire, and then the chair reminded me of uh, the electric chair yes. when they tie him into it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, honestly, probably wouldn't have worked, because that's how he was brought to life, but yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, feed me the electricity. <laughs> oh, fun fact, by the way, in the Kenneth Branagh remake, it is electric eels that he uses to resuscitate him. Oh, okay, that's a choice. A tank full of, like, goo filled with electric eels. Nice. <laughs> That doesn't sound great for Robert De Niro to have to act in, but sure. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> there's actually, oh, there's actually an entire scene when he gets out and, like, all the goose spills everywhere. And it's the naked creature and, like, a half-naked Kenneth Branagh. And he's trying to, like, pick him up and get him to stand up. But they keep sliding in the goo and falling on top of each other. And it's, like, two minutes of these two, like, men just wrestling in the in the goo. Wow. That sounds like <laughs> Eastern Promises, the Frankenstein edition. Kind of, right? <laughs> but also... I'm just imagining what is more homoerotic than watching two half-naked men slipping around in goo trying to hold each other up. Literally watching it, I was like, well, that's a big bowl of cum. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Also, if you had cum on your horror queers bingo, you can now check it off. Bam, it's been too long. I had to bring it back. In, in the Bride of Frankenstein, in the Bride of Frankenstein, no less. (laughs) Well, and you've never had difficulty finding a reason to bring it up. 
So the creature ends up busting out and going into the woods. He is attracted by the sounds of Ave Maria being played on a violin by a blind hermit who is played by O.P. Hedgie. And he mistakes the creature for a friend sent by God. And this is where we get a lot more religious iconography as well, because we have what is essentially a replication of the Last Supper with two people here. Yep. You know, uh, the, the, the hermit has a crucifix on his wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the monster consumes the Christian sacraments of bread and wine as his yep. Last Supper. Uh, people have said that Whale was trying to make a direct comparison of Frankenstein's monster to Christ, mm-hmm. um, but also like inverting the crucifixion. So whereas like you know Jesus was crucified and then resurrected, mm-hmm. the monster is resurrected and then essentially crucified. Yep. Which I actually thought that was kind of cool because in any like possession film or in any Christian themed horror film. You know, the devil's around when the crucifixes get flipped upside down. <laughs> but in this case, really, I would challenge anybody to watch this movie and see the creature as the villain, because so much of this does mirror Christ's journey. I mean, at the end of the day, the creature's not trying to help anybody except himself and just try to live his own life. But the way that his journey parallels, he's just trying to do right, and it keeps getting him into trouble, and people keep wanting to kill him. It's just that his starting point is that he started dead, and then he... I don't disagree with you. And I do think that if, if you are an inherently religious person, you're a, a conservative religious person. Let me say that. Mm-hmm. You can view that and be, okay, cool. Yeah, monster equals evil because, like, you know, inversion of Christianity, whatever. If you are not, you can look at this and say, oh, this is whale challenging organized religion. Not oh, yeah. saying, oh, the monster is evil because of this inversion of Christianity. But more so that, like, the inversion of Christianity does, or, or anti-Christianity does not equal evil or sinful or, mm. like, monstrous. Um, okay. Because, yeah, I, I do think that whale empathizes with this creature very much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I found very interesting is the use of the word friend throughout this movie. Oh. But here particularly, so the hermit basically describes the creature as friend and teaches him language. And at one point is like, okay, so we are friends. I am friend. You are friend. Mm -hmm. And Benchoff quotes a critic named Rona J. Berenstein. And she argues that the Breen office may even have unwittingly contributed to the film's overall homoerotic project by insisting that the word mate in reference to the female monster at the end of the film be dropped. So friend replaces mate, supposedly desexualizing the possible heterosexual relationship between the male and the female creations, but in effect sexualizing all the other male-male bonds, most of which are also described in terms of friendship. So originally, before Breen demanded that that word be cut, they would have only referred to male friendships as friend. But because they then transpose friend onto this dynamic at the end between the bride and the creature, it's like, oh, wait, you sexualized the word friend, and now all of the relationships that have involved friend are now sexual. And see, okay, where I was going with that in my mind, I was like, so, you know, like, whenever people are closeted, or at least in, like, in, uh, in, like you know, olden, the olden days of yore, mm-hmm. if two men lived together, they were, oh, this is my friend. Oh, my, for sure. Yeah, my yeah. special friend. My roommate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, I fully agree with that. Because as of the day that we're recording this, there were documents that were uncovered talking about Abraham Lincoln having a disagreement with his friend about slavery. But it was like, they lived together, and they even shared a bed, but him and his friend. And you're just thinking like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> cue our bros. Um, It's possible for two men to just be friends, y'all. Sure, of course. <laughs> and if you happen to touch that other friend's dick, you can still be friends. No, I'll expand upon that, though. I mean, so gender studies author Elizabeth Young writes, the creature has no innate understanding that the male-female bond he is to forge with the bride is assumed to be the primary one, or that it carries a different sexual valence from his relationships with Pretorius and the Hermit. There All effective relationships are as easily friendships as marriages. So again, I'm just echoing what you're saying here. Mm-hmm. Indeed, his relationship with the hermit has been interpreted by some as a same-sex marriage that heterosexual society will not tolerate. No mistake, this is a marriage and a viable one. But Whale mm-hmm. reminds us quickly that society does not approve once our hunters come in and immediately tear them down. Yeah, indeed. Before we quite get there, I have two other pieces that I want to <laughs> add to this. So I know we have so much. So Mora says, these scenes together are extraordinarily powerful, resonant on several levels, as satires of the nuclear family, full of the little familiarities and comic sympathetic interchanges supposed to be typical of families, and as a bitter view of society's ultimate responsibility for seeing intelligent, sensitive people, read homosexuals, as cripples and monsters. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. And I would prefer not to use the word cripple but um... i was i i i I, I didn't scoff at cripple but i was like is that okay to say i'm like like racking my brain right now (laughs) feel like it is so i'm just gonna say you know the hermit and the creature in this regard are both outcasts from society because of their various uh, disabilities perceived disabilities yes (laughs) there you go And then the other final piece that I'll add is when they settle down for the evening before the hunters come in in the morning, there's this moment where the creature is lying on the bed and Breen took issue with the cross in the back because it looks like the hermit is praying over him and Breen didn't like it. So Whale actually had to blur the cross. So it's kind of hazy. But people have said, oh, did no one catch the fact that it looks like the hermit is giving the creature head? A blowjob? Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. Right? So you're kind of like, distract them with the cross and sneak in the sexual innuendo. Oh, my God. Um, Again, three or four times I've seen this movie, never caught that. I know. I had to go back and (laughs) look at it because I had also missed it. (laughs) You just imagine Whale sitting behind the camera like... (laughs) (laughs) They're never going to catch it. What a bunch of idiots. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. So this is short-lived. The hunters do arrive goes into chaos they end up burning this cabin down <laughs> Ooh, if i want to do my reachy reading here too mm-hmm. in both movies the creature is terrified of flames you know flaming qualities like some of us flaming queers he's terrified of it he doesn't want to give in to his queer desires <laughs> uh you know what i will i will let you have everything <laughs> but also that seems like a bit of a reach it's a reach <laughs> <laughs> So the creature ends up hiding in a crypt, and he emerges only when he hears Pretorius and his goons scouting for a 19-year-old female body. It's interesting that you said that the actress who replaces Elizabeth is 19 in real life. 17, 17. Damn it! Okay. Yep, I know. Well, that doesn't work anymore, does it? (laughs) They aged that bitch up. (laughs) They sure did. 
So as the goons leave, Pretorius drinks and toasts in his white doctor's outfit. He's not at all perturbed by the monster's appearance. I do like the conflation of the two dinner scenes, right? So one is not acceptable because the creature should not be sharing this meal with the hermit because they're both outcasts. And then here we've got the more queer-coded person similarly saying, like, break bread, break wine with me, and here we will get a kind of new unhappy marriage or, like, a nasty mothering figure who will shepherd and guide this charge to destruction. Yeah, I I wrote they're having a a first date. Like, (laughs) the the monster has two first dates in this movie, and it's great. There we go. The monster is swiping right on every match. (laughs) So Morris does see this more as a parental relationship. He suggests Pretorius is the monster's more involved but manipulative, even abusive parent figure, the embodiment of society's fears of the vast damage, the homosexual, nefariously moving into the role of domestic caretaker, teacher of social values and sex role attributes is capable of doing. I mean, I could see it as parental, but I could also view it as mentor. You know, like old gay mentoring young gay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Again, so many different queer readings, all within a 70-minute text. Right? And no one's wrong. No. <laughs> no. You can discount any of these ones and come up with your own, and that is also fine. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So Pretorius arrives on the eve of the Frankenstein marriage, and he brings the creature with him, demanding that Dr. Frankenstein continues their work. So he's basically like, hey, I brought your son. (laughs) I found him in the crypt, and we got to keep working because now he wants a mate. Also, I'm going to kidnap your wife in case you say no. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's a a little bit of under duress. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to make the magic happen. Well, he has this line delivery, too, where he's like, oh, he's quite harmless. Except when crossed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my god. Vessinger's every line delivery in this movie is exquisite. It's so good. I live for everything that Vessinger's doing here. I almost wish that the costuming was a bit more ostentatious because I do think yeah. that this would be an iconic Halloween costume, like dressing with the hair. The problem is, is that aside from the face and his delivery... He's not that noticeable. Like, I feel like people wouldn't know who you were doing. But I think he is just such a camp icon that it would be a great Halloween costume. You know what? You build some little glass tubes of little people, the homo nuclei, and and, and you put them in your coat. And so you open it like a flasher and you just have your little people in there. And you're like, people will get it. (laughs) Will they? (laughs) I don't know. Someone who's seen this movie will get it. (laughs) There we go. And, And if... They do, then you know that they are your people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They're very gay. Family. We're They're family. Gay. Yeah. So they get down to work, and Pretorius keeps the creature. <laughs> he he just keeps plying him with booze, which I was like, oh, man, if we're reading this as a bad parent figure, that is pretty much the definition. Like, get this kid out of my hair. Uh, Here, drink some booze. Uh, art imitating life, considering Colin Clive is sitting right there. Ugh, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So after briefly confirming that Elizabeth is, in fact, still alive in in this movie, because who could care? No one. Oh, oh, when she shows up in the finale, were you like, where the fuck did you come from? Where have you been? How did you get out? Why are you here? (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Oh, were you here because Breen demanded it? Because the Hays Code said you had to come back? Okay, sure. Get in here. 
I was like, I need like a two second shot of her unlashing her, like, getting out of whatever room she was in. Right. Yeah. Maybe having a stare down with a skeleton and screaming and yeah. <laughs> so uh, the two scientists end up prepping the body, this female body that they have stolen from the crypt and the storm is rising. I do love the elaborate production that has to go into this with, you know, getting the kites to go out from the top of the castle turret and it signifies nothing, but it's very fun to look at. It's a performance. Like, yes. I mean, people are coming to this movie, and it's special effects, right? Like, th- this mm-hmm. is your second, your, your really big special effects number outside of the unexpected one with the hub, the little people. Right. And it goes, I mean, yeah, it's like a minute or two of just, like, watching things go flash. Yeah. It's levers and beakers and storm. It's a fireworks show. That's what it is. And I can just imagine people in 35 being like, ooh, how's it going to be? Like, What's the bride going to look like, even though she's on the poster of the movie? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I did find one little funny piece of trivia, which is that they apparently put all of this laboratory equipment into storage. And then Mel Brooks, when he was filming (laughs) Young Frankenstein, he discovered it and was like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to use this. So when you watch (laughs) Young Frankenstein, it's the exact same lab equipment as this film. See, that's what I should have watched today. I watched Bride of Frankenstein. I watched Frankenstein. I watched Gods and Monsters. And I watched Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. I should have switched out Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein for Young Frankenstein. (laughs) I don't know. It sounded like you had an interesting time watching it. Because that (laughs) Helena Bottom Carter switch thing sounded very intriguing. I will tell you right now, this movie is not a good movie. It is way too melodramatic. The score is really bombastic and out of place. The editing's very choppy, but oh my god, if only, if only for the last like 20 to 25 minutes of this movie where it goes like full-blown like what the fuckery, Mm. um, it's worth it for just that. Okay. Listeners, you should also know that I asked Trace if he was going to watch The Bride, which is another version of this from the Mm -hmm. 90s, which has Sting in the Dr. Frankenstein role, and Trace said no. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> maybe it's good. Scream Factory does have a blue of this, so maybe one day, but no. Maybe. no. <laughs> uh, listeners, let us know if it's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. So they raise this body up on this table up into the storm so that it gets hit by lightning. And up there, the creature tosses Pretorius's grave robber friend, Carl, off the ledge. Yep. I had honestly forgotten that Carl was even in this movie. It just seems like such a weird additional piece that doesn't need to be in there. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's because in the first one, you know, Henry has his Fritz, his little henchman. Mm-hmm. The problem is, though, we already have, like, basically, Frankenstein, like, Henry is Pretorius's henchman in this movie. Yeah, for sure. So we don't need number three. No, and he doesn't get enough screen time. I mean, again, maybe this is where the murder of the uncle and all that other stuff would have paid off, but he feels extraneous as it is. Yeah. Yeah. He's there for a body. Yeah, essentially. Oh, it's not exciting enough to have this this woman being raised on a table and being struck by lightning. We should probably toss someone off just to keep things interesting. <laughs> just in case, in case the audience is too bored. <laughs> <laughs> the horror bros of 1935. Ugh, this is so boring. We haven't gotten a murder in so long. Oh my god, could you imagine? <laughs> when are we going to get to see this chick? We're going to see her tits. I mean, no, actually, in this, it's the top of her chest. There we go. <laughs> the top of her cleavage. I need to see top boob. I'm so bored. <laughs> Just that slit right at the tip of the corset. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the bride, when they bring her down, she is finally revealed. And I do love the fact that it's revealed in stages, right? Mm-hmm. So we peel off the eyes so that we can see Elsa Lanchester's eyes and 
as you mentioned earlier, very striking. And then it's like, we're peeling off the bandages. I guess um, James will learn from doing the Invisible Man, like a good reveal scene can be very impactful. Well, he's really good with his lighting too. I have no proof of this, but I'm choosing to believe that I think it's Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld, when he did the Adams Family movies, um, mm-hmm. because when, whenever he shoots Angelica Houston as Morticia, he always frames her where her face is shrouded in darkness, but she has like the horizontal ray of light right. just across her eyes. Yes. I'm choosing to believe it's a reference to this like reveal scene of her eyes under the bandages in this scene. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. I mean, as we mentioned repeatedly this movie has informed pop culture for many many years it definitely has and uh actually the ones i found today uh small soldiers has a really good bride of frankenstein riff whenever they resurrect all the barbie dolls that are voiced by christina ricci and sarah michelle geller and of course previous episode bride of chucky which name in and of itself but tiffany's entire death scene is shot to bride Mm -hmm. of frankenstein yeah ah so good Mm mm-hmm So, yes, we finally get our reveal where we see what she looks like. The bride has these herky-jerky movements. Uh, She has her conical streaked hair, very iconic. And, of course, she has her swan hissing. Uh, I'm glad you found that anecdote, too. Apparently, yeah, her and Charles Lawton used to go feed the swans at some lake or whatever in London, and (laughs) she said they were real douchebags. I mean, not in those words exactly, but (laughs) they would just hiss if you got too close, so she'd mimic their hissing. (laughs) I love it. Nature, you can pull everything into a role if you want to go method. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we can talk about her now because she's here. Mm -hmm. This is a character who is the title character, but yes. almost gets rebecca in that she's almost not in this movie, period, because she's only in the final three minutes. I love the idea of rebecca <laughs> <laughs> And in case you don't know what that means, it is the title character who does not make a single appearance in the film. Right, yes. So one interesting fact that I have is that Pretorius calls her the Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we have both deliberately been doing throughout this episode is making sure that we don't call the monster Frankenstein, which is a pretty common mistake that people will often make. Right. But I found it interesting, and so does Brian Kuyper of Bloody Disgusting when he talked about the kind of legacy of the bride from The Bride of Frankenstein. He mentions that bride here could actually refer to Henry's fiance, so like the proper bride of Frankenstein is in the doctor, mm. or the female creation or the partnership with Dr. Pretorius. So this idea that Henry Frankenstein is the bride of Dr. Pretorius. Huh. Because it's also like a marriage, right? Right? We're having a double wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, new creation, you go to the monster, and I get Henry. Exactly. And also Elizabeth, fuck off. She's she's locked up. She ain't coming out. She, yeah. he, he lied to him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll return her later. But first, you need to sign this document and come live with me in the woods. And then, like, we smash cut to, like, Elizabeth getting thrown off a cliff somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's the thing. We should have thrown Elizabeth off the turret. We shouldn't have thrown off Carl. <laughs> I mean, well, because in the novel, the creature does kill Elizabeth. He strangles yes. her to death and mm-hmm. taunts Henry by pointing at her corpse. Like, I'm Love sorry, it. Victor in the novel, but... right. Yeah, and so I, I obviously I guess the movie the, the board was like, well, we have to you know have the straight couple be together. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Okay, so we then get the introduction scene where the creature is introduced to the bride. He asks if she is his friend, as we talked about. Significant that he uses that term. And she promptly screams at him in probably one of the most parodied and also memorable moments of this movie. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it could come across as comical, but it's actually kind of sad. Oh, especially because the bride at the end of the day is not a proper character. No. You know, she she doesn't have agency. She doesn't have any kind of depth. She really is an animated doll, but she has a consciousness and she sees this thing, which is terrifying. And it's like, oh, you're promised to this. You're going to marry it. You're going to make babies well, with it. And she's horrifying. a mail order bride that, you know, like didn't get to. <laughs> She didn't get to choose anything. <laughs> oh my god. I just thought of like the trauma version. Like the trauma remake of this would be the mail order bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> Pretoria's on there like searching the, the ads. Yeah. <laughs> the classifieds. Oh um, so this is an iconic character, right? Like the image yes. of Elsa Lanchester as the bride of Frankenstein. The character herself. But I can guarantee you if you've never seen this movie, you would think she was in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's not. No. How has she become this icon? I mean, again, like it's a sad character. I wish we, I wish we got something from her before she died, because unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's like, ooh, like woman, um, get in your place, marry this thing, because that's your place. Yeah, that sucks. But yet, 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 she has still become one of Universal's like most iconic characters and creatures. Uh-huh. I wonder. Do you think it's because? We don't know anything about her, and we get so little of her. I mean, obviously, the look is a big factor. You know, I've seen drag makeup tutorials where people Mm -hmm. will show you how to do this look, and, like, I didn't realize how indebted the Rocky Horror Picture Show was to this until you start to think about, oh, yeah, it's a combination of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. But... I wonder if it's just because we know so little about her and she doesn't have the kind of agency or characterization that the other characters get. All we have is the look and it is so lasting and impactful that we have just carried it through. And that's why she persists. And you think us queers are just so like, oh my God, the Luke, the Luke. (laughs) I mean, the Luke is so fucking good. Like, especially if you've just seen the poster, if you've just seen still images, Elsa Lanchester is doing so much with basically nothing. No screen time, no dialogue, and yet this character is so memorable. She's wearing a poncho made of sheets. Yeah. Like, (laughs) (laughs) if you're looking at her from the neck down, you're going to be like, girl, what's going on? But Mm -hmm. if you're looking at her from the neck up, it's like, Yeah. Yeah, and again, the way she's lit, the way she's moving, the sound effects that she's making, it's all just great. So good. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, I mean, at the very least, she does say, like, no, I don't fucking want you. Twice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately <laughs> for <Yeah>. her. <laughs> Nobody cares what the lady thinks. Nobody cares. Like, oh, you don't want me? Well, we're, we're going to have a murder-suicide thing going on right now. More or less, yeah. So this is when Elizabeth shows up. Who could care, but yes. Um, she shows up in the, I think in the original script or in the original shoot, they had killed Henry. Like Henry stays in here and dies with them as well. Okay. But I want to say I saw somewhere where it was like, yeah, if you look, there is a shot where you can see Henry still in the thing with them as it's burning. But like it's a yes. quick shot. I also saw that kind of factoid. 
So, but, but it was very much, no, we have to have true love save mm-hmm. the day. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens. So Dr. Frankenstein is told by the creature, go off, you be happy. I did think it was interesting. Tell me if you think this is a reach on my part. But the creature says, we belong dead, as he's telling Dr. Frankenstein and Elizabeth to go. And he's talking about him and Pretorius and the bride. It sounded so much like the iconic line from Pet Cemetery. Oh, dead is better. Yeah, because it's also about reanimated corpses. It is, which I mean, but obviously, you know, what you're saying is, you know, Pet Cemetery is like taking reference from this film. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it's it's sad because it's like, okay, so like he gets rejected by a woman, boohoo, and now he decides he belongs dead. Like what? It feels like the final straw, you know, yes. like I almost had this relationship with the hermit. I thought I was helping the shepherdess when I pulled her out of the pond. Nobody seems to like me. Everybody wants to kill me. And now one of my two dads doesn't want me anymore. Because he has that line. She hate me like others. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, though, like Pretorius is still on his side. So true. I guess because he's supposed to have the mental and emotional capacity of like a 10 year old. I think that's what what I read somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's just like that impulsive childlike thing where it's like, oh, this man like offered me a, a ray of sunshine, a glimmer of right. hope that has now just been crushed by this by this woman. Yeah. So therefore, I'm turning on him, too. Like, there isn't really a shift of character there outside of like, well, I guess, yeah, what we're going with what you said, the final straw. Yeah, it's the last refuge, right? If I can't even get the person who's the most like me of any person on Earth, then really, why am I trying so hard? And if we want to mirror that to the queer experience, Mm -mm. I mean, I will say, I will say, I felt that way, especially as a teenager. Like, Right. I remember my first couple of breakups. I was in high school, but like, I remember how fucking immature and gutted I was post-breakup because it, it very much feels like, Oh, I lost you. I'll never. Yeah, you'll never find love again. You'll never feel this way again. I am alone. And I I, I didn't have suicidal thoughts or anything, but I went into like severe depressions after breakups. And I'm not saying that's like unique to queer experiences. (laughs) Obviously, breakups are hard and they're bad. And if you're young, no matter what. But it's still like with queerness, it's very much like, especially if you're in a small town, like Mm -hmm. if you were dating the one queer person you knew, what else is there? Like, oh, for sure. Obviously now it's like, you know, okay, there are things out there, but it's very much like, what, what? Like, I'm going Mm -hmm. to die alone because the one person that is most like me didn't want me. I literally had that reading when I watched this last night. Because I was just thinking like, okay, well, we're basically putting these two undead creatures together and saying, you have to like each other because you're the only two gays in the village. It's like, it doesn't always work that way. We don't have a connection. Yes, I was thinking the exact same thing too, right? It's like when a girl is, oh, you're you're both gay. Oh my God, go on a date together. No. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I'm looking at that hair. I'm looking at that bandage. She and I don't have anything in like. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, of course, we get this final image of the creature pulling this lever, exploding the three of them as Dr. Frankenstein and Elizabeth make it safely out. And before we go to the credits and the end of this episode, Mm -hmm. I'll bring back Morris one final time. So Morris says that the image of the bride and the encounters that she has with the creature is another strikingly bizarre tableau of marriage. The bride in her tattered, bandagey version of a wedding dress, <laughs> given away by substitute father Pretorius, 
And then the final shot of Henry and Elizabeth united outside cannot eradicate the fantastic vision of the bride's hissing hatred of her mate, the monster. So Morris sees this as, it's like, sure, you got your happy ending, but don't forget, this isn't about marriage. Marriage is bullshit. Heterosexual marriage is crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, now, of course, when we talk about intentions, uh, you know, mm-hmm. some people disagree. They're like, nope, the whale didn't intend that, but it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even whale's companion, David Lewis, who was with him for I mean, most of his life, I'm mean, sorry, most of his adult life, he would say right out that whale's sexuality was not germane to his filmmaking, saying, you know, oh, he was an artist first and foremost. His films represent the work of an artist, not a gay artist, but an artist. And yeah, mm. I do get that, but mm-hmm. I'm also kind of like, I just wonder if, given the time of like the time period that these men lived in, if that was more of a way to be like, don't lessen, oh, I don't yeah. want his legacy to be just that. Well, yeah, it's like one of those qualifiers, right? Like where we talk about, oh, she's a great female athlete. And it's like, no, you could just say athlete or so right. on. And it definitely rings like, I don't want my legacy to be that of a queer director or like the big out gay director. But the reality is that I think if Whale could see the way that we treat queer horror Today. now, mm-hmm. he would actually be far more receptive to this idea because he is a fucking pioneer like i think it's so significant that when you read about james whale they always mention the fact that he was out and proud yeah and it's not like oh he was gay and he was doing these amazing things it's like he was out and proud living publicly with a man commanding these gigantic salaries at universal and making box office smashes that's huge right Clearly, these people at Universal knew he was gay, mm-hmm. but it's like, but you make good movies, so we don't give a fuck. Exactly. Which is like what we queer people so adamantly desire, right? Yes, you are spot on, where it's like, if he could see how it was, how queer discourse was today. Because at the time he died, and I mean, I don't know when his partner died or when this interview was from, but like, there's no way they could have thought, oh, it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always going to be this bad thing, which I mean, again, even for some people today, it is a bad thing. But I have to believe it was more in the sense of, yeah, trying to be like, no, look at the art, not the gay art or mm-hmm. whatever. But yeah, I think you're right. If if they were alive today and were able to comment on this, I think they would have been more. He, he may have been like, oh, it wasn't my intention, but that's great. Like, mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I'm happy that you see it. That's not what I was planning on doing, but sure. But that's the thing is, like, you know, he died in the 50s. So, like, in the 70 plus years since his death, it's only people that knew him that they were trying to protect his work. Exactly. Yeah. So I I get it. I I hate that that's the case. That has to be the case like that. But Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. And also, just for the record, I don't fucking buy it. I don't either. (laughs) Because honestly, if you are casting Ernest Thessinger and you are allowing him to give these kinds of performances, then you are telling your audience that there is a particular reading here. Like, I can't imagine that he looks at this and says, oh, this performance is completely different from every other performance that I am seeing in the 30s. Yeah. I have to believe that he's saying, okay, well, people are either going to pick up on this or they're going to just accept that this doctor is... A little out there. Yeah. I'm also going to burst both roles. We have totally been saying Ernest Thessinger, and it's Thessinger. Like, no in there. Or maybe it's Thessiger. I don't know. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I love to add extra letters into people's That's names. That's fine. I'm doing it, too. I'm just as guilty here. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Well, so that is... 
The Bride of Frankenstein. That is. You know, we did this with Creature from the Black Lagoon where we talked about the, like, the different remakes that had tried and failed to come to fruition over the years. And mm-hmm. Bride hasn't had as many attempts but the most re- I mean so I'm not going to go through the whole like ordeal but um the, the, the basic <laughs> the most recent one was between Angelina Jolie as the bride yep. and Javier Bardem as Frankenstein uh, the, the creature mm-hmm. in what was going to be the continuation of Universal's Dark Universe with the, oh the Tom Cruise mummy but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, every year when the anniversary comes up with that photo of all of them mm-hmm. I just giggle and laugh so Here's the thing with that, and just one thing I want to comment on. So the director of that film was going to be Bill Condon. Yeah. And Bill Condon, everyone, he's a Horrorcore's alumni. He's the director of Candyman 2, but he's also the director of Gods and Monsters, mm-hmm. which is the film we've mentioned already here. So that he, he as a director of James Whale biopic that is centered on Bride of Frankenstein, was also going to direct a new version of Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. He had something in mind. And I do have a quote from him that I think is... At least good. Okay. So November of 2019, Condon reflecting on this Bride of Frankenstein remake not entering production. He stated, That was a heartbreaker, really. The simplest way to say it is that I think The Mummy, and not to say anything against the movie, but the fact that that hadn't worked for them and it was the beginning of this whole reinvention of their monsters gave them cold feet at the end of the day. Because David Coop, who was writing the script, I thought it was unbelievably good. And we were on the verge of making a really beautiful movie, I thought. So that was a shame. He also noted his uncertainty regarding his ability to publicly discuss the project because Co-op is still involved in figuring out a new approach. The movie that we started was devised as a great big movie, and at the day, I think probably these movies should be smaller. Hmm. I can't disagree because if folks have seen that Tom Cruise, The Mummy, it is a straight up action movie with all of the big traditional set pieces. Which is not to say that that can't be a good thing, because I'm thinking of the 1999 Mummy with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, which I fucking love. Mm-hmm. But the new one just doesn't have any heart and soul in it. Like, not only can you tell that they're trying to launch a cinematic universe, but it doesn't feel like it's even trying to be a monster movie. It's just a Tom Cruise supernatural action film. Like Mission Impossible with a monster. Yeah, and it's a pity because he's actually not bad. The action isn't bad. Sophia Patella is actually quite good. I love but the her movie too. is not good. It's aggressively bad. Yeah, I didn't see. I, I honestly still want to watch it just because I'm morbidly curious. But um, oh, I would recommend it. But it's like you just go in with, oh, this is going to be a generic action movie, right? Well, I will say that we at least have hope. So the last update we have on the Bride of Frankenstein remake in um, June of 2020, actually. So during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, screenwriter David Coop said that in addition to still being actively involved with the project, he stated that he was inspired by the success of, guess what? The Invisible Man. There we go. He stated that the story will explore the modern day desire to extend our lives, create life, and cheat death. And mm-hmm. the filmmaker intends to include plot devices that are relevant to the Me Too era, stating that it's horror effortlessly lending itself to metaphor. That would be interesting because really, at the end of the day, if you're thinking about the bride as a character, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. we made a very off-color remark about her being the equivalent of a mail-order bride, but we made the joke because this is a character, like a female character, literally that the movie is named after, and she shows up, has no agency, is destroyed by men. Yep. There's a feminist story to be told from her point of view. 
I think well, it would have to be that you have this bride in, obviously, wait, like she's the main character of the film, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she goes off after rejecting her lover and is like, fuck y'all, I'm not doing this, I'm doing my own thing. Wouldn't that be so much more interesting if you open with her birth scene, recreate this thing, and then have the movie spiral from there and just follow her as she tries to carve her own path and figure out who she is? Yep, and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the route they're taking. If we are pulling from this idea that they were inspired by the Invisible Man, which really did take a different kind of route to what could have been very familiar territory, I think it's a safe assumption. Yeah, I I think so too. (laughs) Well, okay. Anything else on Bride of Frankenstein? So I have one thing. Sometimes we play games, but this time, instead of playing a game with you, I would like to challenge any drag queen or king listeners that we have I would like to see your Ernest Thessinger. I'm still going to pronounce it that way. (laughs) I would like to see your cosplay as Dr. Pretorius or as the bride. So I would love it if people would do a little dress up, do a video, do a lip sync, tag us on social media. I want to see the bride all over the place when this episode drops. Love it. Yes, please, y'all send us this. Tag us at Horror Queers. I mean, I'll, I'll go through my spiel later, but mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> please tag us at Horror Queers. You can use hashtag Horror Queers, but you know, we're not going to see it unless you do that. So at Horror Queers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so excited for these looks we're going to get. Hopefully, yes. we'll see. Yeah, sorry, you don't have to be a drag queen or king. You could just do like a makeup job as well. So open to everybody. If you want to do it, dress up as either of these characters, by all means, send us your shit. Yes. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, that is the Bride of Frankenstein. Finally, I mean, our like third ending for this, but. Uh, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners and find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Finally, we've got a YouTube channel for all of our micro queers episodes, so go check that out to watch Joe to watch Joe and I talk about queer horror shorts. Mm-hmm. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We prefer Apple Podcasts. That's always a bright, shining spot for us. Helps us in search results, too, so that's a good one. Mm-hmm. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, of course, we have episodes on the Fear Street Trilogy and A Quiet Place 2, as well as Werewolves Within and the Shudder exclusive Vicious Fun. And a little Megan Fox joint. Oh, right. Oh, my God. Why is that not in my notes? We also have an episode <laughs> on the new, really good Megan Fox movie, Till Death. Yes. Joe. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about next week? So, Trace, I haven't talked about the third person that I've been podcasting with recently, but like (laughs) when you and I hang out, there's actually another person in the room. The problem is, is that a lot of people don't really see him. You might even say he's a bit imaginary, but um, yeah, I, I think you'll understand a little bit more when we cover the concept of an imaginary friend. So I think we should probably just watch Daniel Isn't Real. Oh, God. I'm so, so listeners, this is a relatively newer film. So we, we're going from 1935 to 2019. Whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah, it is a, it's a recent film starring Miles Robbins and Patrick Schwarzenegger, um, both of whom are very good in this movie. Mm-hmm. And plenty of queer undertones to unpack. Oh, yes. <laughs> and just a deeply gorgeous film. Like, I'm so eager to revisit this film because I know that the writer-director, Adam Egypt Mortimer, mm-hmm. he did a lookbook that he publicly posted online talking about the influences and how he crafted the visual look of the film. It's really interesting. Yeah, and this is a movie that I saw at South By when it premiered, and 
it was a rough South by for me because I was like not liking anything that I was seeing. This is actually the same year as I See You, by the way. Hmm. And this was the first movie where I was like, oh, like Thank I God. loved that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, until next week, y'all, when we talk about Daniel Isn't Real, we can cross out The Bride of Frankenstein. Yes, and cross out horror queers. Thank you.